Our passage this evening will be from Luke 6, 12 through 19. And in these days, he went up to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose them from twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, whom he called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, whom he became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all who of the crowd who sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Father, we thank you that you are a powerful God, and it is, it is your good pleasure to free us from unclean spirits and from those things that vex us. Father, we thank you that it is your good pleasure to heal us, Lord. And we thank you that you have the power to do it and you are willing to do it, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for being a good father and for being a good savior. You're a strong savior and you're consistent and faithful. And there is no one who is stronger than you. There is no one who can overpower you. And there is no one who can take us from your hand. And when we choose, Lord, when we choose to accept you, nobody can pluck us from your hand, Jesus. And we thank you for these things, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, you guys might get sick of hearing my voice tonight. <laughs> It's good to be with you all, and I'm so thrilled to get to open up God's Word and preach it to you. Um, I've got a very small audience, and uh, I'll maybe sometimes look at them, but <laughs> I'm going to try to keep my eyes on you. Um, before I jump into the text today, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever struggle to believe that God can use you? Uh, do you ever... You know, feel like it's only the, the, the qualified, maybe those who are, you know, they have their life together. It's not the messy. It couldn't be, couldn't be me. So I admit, I, I actually struggle with that and, and think that way pretty often. And I'm, I'm learning that this is a pretty common feeling for Christians, actually. We, we commonly, you know, we, we, we look at ourselves and we say, sure, God can save me. Sure, he wants to save all people, but I just don't feel like he could use somebody like me. Now, if you feel unqualified, let me say that you're in good company tonight. <laughs> you're in good company. And I have really good news for you from the word. And Today's passage, um, it actually shows us that the kingdom of God is so different. It's so, so different than the kingdom of man. The kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. And when Jesus chose his leaders upon which he would build his church, 
they were very different individuals than you would expect. In fact, they were very ordinary men that he chose. So my prayer today is, is that you, every single one of you, all of us together as a church would believe and see this God who takes what is unworthy, who takes those who are unqualified and uses them for his kingdom purposes. Let's go ahead and jump right into verse 12. In these days, he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So these first three words, they they call us to look back at the context. In these days, what days? The days where Jesus has appeared and is beginning his ministry. Everywhere he goes, the world is changing. The people that he touches are healed. The things that he speaks to, he has authority over. Demons flee. The crowds were growing. People were following him. The number of his his disciples was increasing greatly. And yet not everybody was happy. We learned last week the religious leaders were distracted, in fact. Even as the kingdom of God was dawning on them, they could not see past the fact that their influence, their power was being challenged. Their rules were being challenged. They couldn't see that the king had come. So Jesus has all this pressure. The, the, the greatest leaders in Israel are not receiving him. He's got crowds following him from all around. Can you imagine what that must have been like? So much pressure. What, what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Look again at verse 12. We're told that he went out to the mountain to pray. He prayed. All night. He he didn't worry. He didn't sin in anger against the the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders. No, he did the one thing that sometimes feels like you're doing nothing at all. He he exercised faith and went to his father. He went to his father. He got alone with God in that moment of pressure. So prayer is nothing more than a conversation with God. It's one that he started. He spoke to us in his word and through his word, he invites us. Speak back to me. Tell me how you feel about me. Tell me, remind me of what I am and who who I am. Prayer is an opportunity for us to get into the heart of God and know who he is and him to remind us of who he says we are. It's an opportunity for us to take our eyes off of the circumstances. We do not see as God sees, church. God's perspective is outside of us. It is, we are finite. He is infinite. So Jesus stepped into that presence, that infinite presence of God to get perspective. Notice again that Jesus went to a mountain. There's so much here, but I, I just want to focus on the, the fact that he got into a, a, a solitude state. He got, he got alone. He, he, 
He escaped from all the craziness of life, from ministry, from from worries, like some of us need today. He got into the presence of his father. Notice also that he prayed not just five minutes, not just a quick whisper, though I'm sure he did that too. But no, this time he prayed all night. In fact, this is the first recorded instance of Jesus praying all night. He didn't give up when he was feeling tired or bored or like God wasn't listening like we so often do. But no, he waited on God. He sat and he waited. What about you? Church, think about the last time you had super hard pressure coming in on you. Maybe maybe a hard decision. Our text will show us that Jesus was in fact making a decision what was that like for you? Maybe you were deciding on a job or, or a relationship or a move. Let me ask you, what, what kind of time did you spend in prayer? I admit, I'm not good at this. I'm really not. I, I really want that quick fix. That Like, just pray the prayer and, and move forward. And there is a time for that. But guys, I think that in our circles, sometimes we fail to give the appropriate time to big decisions. We fail to get God's heart on a ministry decision. We fail to, to, to step away from the, the world's uh, sight and get God's sight, get God's heart. As we're going to see in our text today, God's ways are not always our ways. So sometimes we need to sit for a while to get our head around it. We need our minds to be transformed and moved into to, to, into alignment with God's. Jesus models for us a relationship with God that waits. One that deliberates and wrestles with God over hard decisions. Now, I will say that there's an opposite ditch. Some of us don't move enough. We sit and we wait and wait and wait and wait and hope that God will just speak audibly to us. And that's, guys, that's not what I'm saying here. That's not what I'm encouraging. Some of us do need to just move forward. But I think for the majority of us, this passage can be an instructive, instructive to us, challenging us to sit a little longer, wait a little longer like Jesus did in prayer. He models something that is so important for us. We need to sit with God, word open, asking him for his heart, for his strategy, for the next thing. We cannot overlook this, guys. Jesus' ministry strategy was birthed out of communion with the Father. Always. He went so far as to say that he didn't do anything apart from the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing. We need to learn from our master. Church, we cannot be a prayerless church. We need to learn from him on this. When day came, let's look at verse 13 together. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Whom he named apostles. So like most of us would probably do, we stayed up all night. We had a night of prayer. We'd want to go to bed, right? No, Jesus doesn't go to bed. In fact, he, he goes and he gathers up all his disciples who are probably not the easiest people 
And what does he do? He names apostles. He goes and he begins to choose 12. Jesus had a plan from God that that implied here he received in the night of prayer. He, He received from God direction, even specific direction on who he should call as the twelve. Jesus evidently had a lot of disciples already gathered to him. And imagine that day with me, maybe hundreds, maybe more coming around him and Jesus naming one by one these 12 to come and stand with him. Peter, come over here and be with me. What would that have been like? I think I would have been freaked out to hear my name called. But Jesus called these men, these men who would be the closest friends and companion to Jesus, the men who would share his last meal, the men who would stand witnessing the cross, some some who would see and touch the resurrected Jesus, the one who would have their feet washed by him. Even one of them would have would be betraying Jesus. These men would be spending every waking moment with Jesus, being trained and equipped by them. This was an important decision that Jesus was making. We're told that Jesus named them apostles. You see that in verse 13. He named them apostles. What does that mean that he named them apostles? Well, apostles of the word apostle means nothing more than one who is sent. One who is sent. So you'll find that that there are people who are called apostles later in the New Testament. But these 12 will be held in high esteem by the church. And they'll even be called, referred to as the 12 by the church for the rest of of the scriptures and throughout history. This is an exclusive group that everybody, all the disciples held in highest esteem because Jesus handpicked them. He handpicked them and called them. These were the 12. And Jesus had a particular mission in mind for them. In fact, these were the very men upon which Christ would build his church. This was the foundation. Ephesians 2.20, if you want to look at that later. These are the ones who would walk with him through all of his life, witnessing his life, death, and resurrection, write scriptures, and even instruct the church in all that he did, all that they had seen and taught. He had a particular mission in mind for these men. So why 12? Think about another time in scripture, another group that's that's 12, 12 people. How do you, can you... Can you recall if you're if you're thinking the the 12 tribes of Israel, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. That there are 12 tribes in Israel and Jesus calls 12 apostles. Think about this. Even as Moses came down from Mount Sinai to the 12 tribes, this newly delivered people and delivered to them the law of God. This brand new people of God. Jesus came down off of a mountain and chose 12 apostles and delivered to them. He would, in these coming verses, the law of the kingdom. He delivered to them 
the law. And church, he was, in fact, he was creating a new people of God yet again. This was a deliberate move. This call of 12 men was was not uh, a throwaway number. This was a deliberate move and a deliberate message. This act was in part a judgment on Israel who had long been unfaithful. Their call was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the name of God, with the law of God. They were supposed to be the beacon of light to the rest of the world, but they had failed in that. And so God was doing something new. The kingdom would no longer spread through the expansion of Israel's borders or through access to the temple in Jerusalem. People would no longer belong to God based on their ethnic, their ethnicity or adherence to the law, but rather they would be long to God based on a relationship with this man, Jesus. They would belong to God based on the relationship with Jesus. Through him, they would live out the law perfectly. I want to unpack that a little bit more later in the sermon. Luke actually hints at the the bizarre nature of this people in verse 17. We're going to go there a little bit later, but I just want to make mention of it now. Where you will see that the crowds were made up not just of Jews, but also of Gentiles. People from Tyre and Sidon would come near. This is a big theme throughout Luke. He wants to highlight that Jesus' purpose was to create a new person. A new new people made up of both Jew and Gentile. Everyone in in any people group could come and belong to God and be a part of that people based on the relationship with Jesus. This new covenant people would be made up of both Jew and Gentile. So this is what Jesus is doing. In calling 12, he's he's making a statement. A new covenant people was being created. A people who would spread his kingdom to the earth. Now I want us to discuss these 12, this team that Jesus is calling. They were probably the highly skilled, right? You would expect that. Let's look at verse 14. I can only highlight a few of them, so I'm going to, I'm going to push through this uh, quickly. There's little known about this group of men. But Simon Peter heads up every list in the gospel, in the gospels. He's a Galilean fisherman. He was introduced to us back in chapter uh, 5. Um. In every list of the 12, Peter is mentioned first. He seems to be a first among equals. Andrew was Peter's brother, we're told. James and John seem to be partners with with Andrew and Peter, and they make up Jesus' inner circle along with Peter. Matthew, who is also called Levi, we were introduced to him in the last chapter. He is the tax collector of all people, the one that we read about. And he would end up writing the Gospel of Matthew. Thomas, who is called the twin, he is known uh, by most of us as the doubter, doubting Thomas. He doubted the resurrection, and what a shame to be caught with that reputation. He did, in fact, go on to do very good things. So um, 
There's, there's much to be admired more than the fact that he doubted. Uh, Simon, the zealot, he was part of a revolutionary group. This group, the, the zealots, they were known as people that hated the Romans. And in fact, some of them were murderous. They would, they would in fact, kill Romans any chance that they could. That was, they hated the Romans. They wanted to rid them of the land. He and Judas... The son of James, who is another list called Thaddeus, are only mentioned four times. Some of these guys are only listed mentioned once in Scripture. It's there's not much known about them. Judas Iscariot completes the list. He apparently is the only one from outside of Galilee, and he is always at the end of the list because he is, in fact, the one who betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. So I want to ask, what do these men have in common? What do these men have in common? Well, at least two things. I'll see if I can name a couple. Number one, these guys are incredibly ordinary. (laughs) Incredibly ordinary men. Not who you'd expect. Number two, they have very little in common. These guys have very little in common, and they're incredibly ordinary. They're not the team that you'd expect Jesus to choose if he's starting a new people of God. This is not who you'd expect. This is a weird bunch, an extremely ordinary group of guys. They're not the priests. They're not from the, you know, they're not politicians. They're not famous, but they're fishermen. They're tax collectors. There's one tax collector. Guys, this was a very bold move of Jesus to pick this group of men. And in fact, maybe dangerous. Dangerous to have Simon the Zealot with the tax collector. Can you imagine? I I bet you Jesus once or twice early on in in the ministry saw them eyeing each other over their shoulders suspiciously. (laughs) Guys, this is a weird crew that God pulls together. You've got blue collar fishermen, city boy, married guys with single guys. It's a weird bunch. What was Jesus thinking? He was, in fact, only going to have about three years on earth before he's going to die. And this is the team he picks to train up. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Everything rested on these guys, and this was Jesus' plan A. The one thing that we know brought these guys together is Jesus. The one thing that pulled these guys together was the amazing life of Jesus. They couldn't stay away. They were amazed at him. And and in fact, he came to them and called them and they were shocked by him. He's the one who calls wicked sinners like Peter, the big mouths, the proud, like the sons of Zebedee. He calls them and makes them into his apostles, those who would be used to write scripture, those who would be used to establish the church and turn the world upside down. Don't you see, church, God loves to use ordinary people. He likes humble beginnings. And this, in fact, is a little foretaste of who we are right now. This is a little foretaste of the church and what the church would be like. A complicated mess of people 
who would be empowered only by God's spirit, not because of anything we have in and of ourselves. This would be a church made up of all peoples. Get it? All peoples, church? (laughs) (laughs) This is a church made up of all peoples. So Jesus grabbed his team. Now, what was the first step? What was Jesus going to do with this team? We're, uh, let's go ahead and jump to verse 17. We're told there that he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and he healed them all. What an awesome savior. Anyone who comes to him. Anyone who comes to him. Jesus ministers with a touch. He sets us free. He brings healing and peace. That is our Jesus, church. That is what that is what we all are surrounded by together. We are a weird people, but we come to this Jesus. Notice these words that Jesus came down with them and he came down with them. Who, who, who is them? It's, it's the apostles. It's the 12. It's the guys he had just picked. And he comes and he brings them into the ministry. Jesus goes right on doing exactly what he had been doing before. And now he's got a bunch of guys next to him to show them what he's up to. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom through miracle working and teaching. He demonstrated all these things to them. Don't you see, church, Jesus didn't go and buy a building after he picked his 12 and say, hey, let's meet here at this time. I'm going to teach you for 30 minutes and then we'll go on with our lives. No, Jesus spent so much time with these men. He gave his life to discipling them, training, equipping them. And this was only the beginning of the training. Church, he would not just demonstrate, but he in fact would give them power and call them to do the very same things that he was doing. In fact, as you read forward in scripture, you'll read in Acts that the same power that is described as coming from Jesus will be described as coming out from the apostles. They'll be doing the same things that Jesus did because they're, related, because they're in relationship to him and because of the Spirit's power coming through them. This is why, church, we believe that discipleship, the discipleship is best done life on life so that the gospel can be incarnated into all aspects of life. So that every aspect of life, the gospel can speak to. Jesus shows us that discipleship is better caught than taught. We believe that we're trying to model that as a church. Here we see Jesus's idea of disciple making, and it would only last a few short years, but it would continue after he ascended through the spirit. God's strategy, church, is not like ours. I want you to marvel with me. This is this is a theme throughout Luke. God's strategy is to come to people like the shepherds. Remember the shepherds. He called those ordinary men. 
to relay his message. Jesus came to Mary. He was, he was born of the Virgin Mary, this little teenage poor virgin girl. In the incarnation, Jesus came as an ordinary man. He came as an ordinary man so that he could call and show ordinary men how to live. So he could call and equip and train us up to spread his kingdom, advance his kingdom in the earth. Jesus didn't convert the world powers. No, he came and he called fishermen of all people to be his messengers upon which he would build his church. And church, this is where you and me fit in. This was our start, church. This was our start. The apostles have, were empowered by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and went on proclaiming this message that Jesus taught them and showed them. And they have been making disciples who have been making disciples. And all the way down to us, we've heard the good news and we all gather around this person, Jesus, who has transformed lowly sinners given us resurrection life. This is our start for anyone who's trusting Jesus. We belong to God. We're his people now. And we're a weird bunch. We are. We're a weird bunch. Just take a minute and look around at those screens. (laughs) We are not, most of us, the elite of society. Most of us, not the rich. Most of us, Not the powerful, but God has chosen us and filled us with his Holy Spirit for the cause of his kingdom advancement on earth. Don't you see? Again, God loves to call the ordinary for his work. And why? Why does God do this? And why are we taking so much time to make this point? Because God loves to show off his glory. Church, God loves to show off his glory. Here's the deal. We cannot boast. We have nothing. When God chooses ordinary people, when he raises the dead to life, where's the boasting in that? God gets the credit. He shows us, the Apostle Paul calls God the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. I was reading that in Romans this week, and it just stood out to me as I've been preparing this sermon. God is the one who calls even you, the person who thinks that you could never be used by God. He says, you are what you don't think you are. I'm going to make you something more than you could imagine. And that's my prayer for us today, that we will see and believe that God is calling us, calling us to great purposes, just like he did these ordinary disciples. You may be ordinary, even unqualified today, church. I'm not anything more than an ordinary man. And yet in Christ, you and me are more important to him, more important to to kingdom advancement than you could ever imagine. By the power of the Spirit. Friends, man looks at outward appearances, but God is not partial. And anyone who comes to him with faith, he can use. Anyone. I hope you're not still wondering if God wants to use you. I hope that's not even a question in your mind as you observe these disciples, the men that Jesus called. So now I want to ask a couple questions or or one question. How how should we now live if this is the reality of who we are? If this is who we are, if, if, if we are as great as you're saying, Daniel, what does that mean? What do we do with that? 
Number one, I want you to know your place. I want you to know your place and I want you to rejoice in it. Here's what I mean. God does not make mistakes, church. He does not make mistakes with you. Some of us will be like Peter. Some of us will be prominent leaders and will be heard a lot about. Some of us will be more like Bartholomew, who's only mentioned once in these lists, but was equally as important and went on to do great things for the kingdom of God. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have reason to rejoice. It is unfitting for the children of God to envy other people's posts. Know your place today and rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. Number two, I want us us to pray. I want us to pray and I want us to pick a team to train up as Jesus did. You see, before Jesus ascended, he gave us the commission. Matthew 28, the, the, the final kind of word to the disciples, I want you to go and preach the good news. Make disciples. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have said preach good news. <laughs> That's part of it. But he said, make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? What does it mean to make disciples? Remember, Jesus came down with them. He modeled it for them. Church, in our circles, we often think about discipleship as handing a book to somebody, sitting and talking it out for a long time. Maybe it's just coming to church and that's that's the end of discipleship. No, let's re-examine Jesus' strategy for discipleship. It's not just information dumping, guys. There's so much more to it. In fact, throughout history, Jesus is following the pattern that, that, that most people learn by. Most people taught their kids. They taught, they taught others how to work by letting them apprentice with them. They would follow them. They would do work in life with them. They watched them. I'm not saying, church, that books aren't helpful. They are. And and talking certainly will be a part of it. Teaching, instructing, what we're doing here is valuable. But it cannot be all that we do. We need to show our disciples how to fight. We need to show uh, how to forgive and how to reconcile with one one another when we've blown it. Church, we need to show our disciples what it means to pray and how to study the scriptures. We need to walk with one another through these things, through all of life. That's what we're calling you to do, church, as a part of all peoples. That's what we want for discipleship in this church body. I want to challenge you this week to consider who God would call you to disciple. I want each of you to spend some time this week and even journal out uh, and pray and journal out. Who is God calling you to focus on? Who has he given you influence over? Who do you have a voice in their life? And I want you to I want you to make aims to spend more time with them and have them more a part of your life to invite some of these people, maybe even to live with you, to to come into your home. Maybe maybe it just looks like a Zoom call once a week, but bring them into what you're doing. 
And I want you to share that with your DNAs. I want you to talk with them about this. In fact, speaking of DNAs, church, this is a, this is a built-in discipleship structure. This is exactly what we're after, a small group of people that can be discipling, building one another up. We have point people over these groups to help shepherd the group forward. So there, I, we want to see you building one another up. So you have people right there, and I want you to encourage. I want to encourage you to to look at those who are around you. Maybe in your MC, you have your missional community. There are some people that you can invite to into more of what you're doing. Perhaps outside of the church, people in your work or your neighbors. It's time for you to invite them in to more of what you're doing. But friends, church, uh, discipleship doesn't stop there. You are both a disciple maker and a disciple. You are a disciple. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. Even as you're looking to make disciples, I want you to consider who are people around you that are killing it. They're a little further ahead than you. They're, they're, they're living out the kingdom. They're living like Jesus. I want you to get around them. I want you to follow them. And I'm not talking about being weird. <laughs> I don't want you to like, like be on their tails. I don't want you to say, please disciple me. No, just get around them. Ask, hey, can we sit down for coffee? Can we get on a Zoom call? I want to ask you some questions. I have some questions for you. This is an opportunity, church, for us to rethink if we're living as disciples and if we're making disciples. Guys, this is God's mission, and this is his strategy to transform the world. And I think we need to, I just want to call us to, to rethink and realign, make sure that we're, our strategy is in line with Jesus's. There's no plan B here. Jesus called you, an ordinary man or woman, to call and disciple other ordinary men, men and women. So that's the challenge today. And, and, and I want to speak quickly to those who maybe are here that are not yet following Jesus. If that's you, Jesus called those 12 disciples that day, and I want you to hear the same call from Jesus. He invites you to come and join his team. He made that possible on the cross. He went to the cross and he died the death that you and me deserve for our sins, so that we could be near him, so that we could watch him and learn from him and rediscover true life. Friends, I want that for you, and I invite you to come. Lay down your sins. Lay down your burdens. Lay down every piece of shame that you might be carrying and come and find life and purpose in Jesus. He rose from death, assuring us that he is the way to eternal life. So I want to invite you into that. Church, let's spend the next few minutes worshiping together. I'm going to pray and Sam's going to lead us as we consider these things. Father, lead us into a greater awareness of your incredible grace that would call ordinary broken sinners like us into your church, into light, into life. And Father, I ask that you would then help us to be faithful disciple makers, help us to change the world, help us to see those around us that you're calling us to minister to. Lead us, Father, make us a more fruitful people and help us now to worship you for 
your grace. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.